Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. Hello everyone, I'm Julie, and here we have episode 260 of Forgotten Classics, where we will be finding out just how well the escape, projected escape, from the land of the people of the mist is going for Leonard and Juana and Francisco and Otter. Well, I guess that's everybody in our merry band. If I sound a bit funny talking, I had just a bit more surgery on my mouth today, and it wasn't a lot, but it was just enough to change how I sound to myself. So, however, I did not want to delay the podcast. I do that enough anyway, just through real life. So we're forging on ahead. Now, what about the podcast highlight? I have actually been sampling several different podcasts recently looking for something new and have not been very happy with them, unfortunately. So what I'm going to do instead is tell you about a book I just finished reading because it's a light summer read, amusing, fun mystery if you're into that kind of thing. People either really enjoy this book or they stop reading halfway through. But for me, it seems like the perfect beach read. The book is called Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore. This is set in modern-day San Francisco. Clay Jannon has been laid off from his job, and he can't find another. Jobs are scarce. So it kind of is modern-day times, right? The one job he's been able to find is at Mr. Penumbra's 24-Hour Bookstore, where he has the the middle-of-the-night shift. But the thing that's odd is it doesn't carry very many new books or even modern books at all. It doesn't have very many patrons and the few regular patrons they have seem to be going under a lending library sort of situation. They'll bring and trade in a book and he's got to write down in a log all these odd details about them. Like what are they wearing? What are their buttons made of? How was their hair parted? And there's a whole long line of these books as if this has been going on for a really long time. Naturally, being an enterprising young fellow, he's trying to get more going on with the bookstore so they can make money. Mr. Penumbra keeps saying, well, that's super, but don't worry about it. That's fine. And eventually what happens is Clay gets interested enough to do something he seems to be good at, which is sourcing people to help him solve problems. And he gets some software that helps him map the store because a lot of these books that he's getting for these people are books that do not show up on any index of any printed book. So this is another odd thing. He's also been told, do not look in any of these books. Well, naturally, who wouldn't be curious under those circumstances? And what he discovers is a really great mystery that kind of turns into one of these quests that it includes secret societies and museums and ancient artifacts, but it also includes really modern things like ebooks and virtual reality programs, and it delves deep into the heart of Google. And so you've got the high tech point of view, but you also have the older ancient stuff. And what you wind up with is this real interesting tension between do you follow the old ways or the new ways? Can you combine the old and the new ways to do something different? 
which I realize doesn't make much sense. But in terms of following this quest, it's almost like a grown-up Harry Potter book, or I didn't read the Da Vinci Code, but that sort of a mystery where you're following all these clues and they're hanging it off of bits of real history. And one of the things that I really enjoyed is it delves deep into Aldous Minutius, who's one of the people who revolutionized typesetting and typography. And that's where the Dan Brown thing kind of got to me, where it takes things that are kind of real about him and then twists them to make them work for the story, adding a character and that sort of thing. It was a lot of fun. If you've ever played some of these role-playing games, which I love, or have been interested in something like a quest like you would find in the Lord of the Rings or some of those other fantasy books or love playing things where you solve puzzles and mysteries. This book hits those buttons, so to speak. And I really enjoyed it. As I say, it's a light book. It can be humorous. And I liked the message. It's not the deepest book in the world, but a book doesn't have to be really deep in order to be good sometimes. So Take a look around at some of the reviews, give it a try, and if you do read it, let me know what you think. Now, back to our other book that doesn't have to be very deep to be enjoyable, (laughs) now that I think about it, talk about a theme, although this book is much less involved in solving mysteries and much more involved in how do we stay alive? Oh my goodness. We're just waiting for dawn to see if Juana's promise comes true, that dawn will come, or if she's going to have to carry out the threat of, well, I would rather be dumped into that deep pool for a monster to eat me than stick around and be the god to a bunch of ungrateful people like you. Again, a brilliant bluff, but probably not really effective since they're not gods. Well, in classic H. Ryder Haggard style, we are going to hit a couple of really great plot twists. So let's not wait any longer. Let's dive in, and I'll meet you on the other side. The People of the Mist by H. Ryder Haggard Chapter 30 Francisco's Expiation When they had finished their meal, which was about as sad an entertainment as can well be conceived, they began to talk. Do you see any hope? asked Juana of the other three. Leonard shook his head and answered, Unless the sun shines at dawn tomorrow, we are dead men. Then there is little chance of that, boss, groaned Otter, for the night is as the nights have been for these five weeks. No wonder that these people are fierce who live in such a climate. Juana hid her face in her hands for a while, then spoke. They did not say that any harm was to come to you, Leonard, or to Francisco, so perhaps you will escape. I doubt it, he answered. Besides, to be perfectly frank, if you are going to die, I would rather die with you. Thank you, Leonard, she said gently. But that will not help either of us much, will it? What will they do with us? Throw us from the head of the statue? And she shuddered. That seems to be their amiable intention, but at any rate we need none of us go through with it alive. How long does your medicine take to work, Juana? 
half a minute at the outside, I fancy, and sometimes less. Are you sure that you will take none, Otter? Think, the other end is dreadful. No, shepherdess, said the dwarf, who now, in the presence of imminent danger, was, as he had been before he sought comfort in the beer-pot, brave, ready, and collected. It is not my plan to suffer myself to be hurled into the pit. Nay, when the time comes, I shall spring there of my own free will, and if I am not killed, and an otter knows how to leap into a pool, then, if I cannot avoid him, I will make a fight for it with that great dweller in the water. Yes, and I go to make ready that with which I will fight. And he rose and departed to his sleeping place. Just then, Francisco followed his example, seeking a quiet place in which to pursue his devotions, and thus Leonard and Juana were left alone. For some minutes he watched her as she sat beside him in her white temple dress, her beautiful face looking stern and sad against the dusky background of the torchlight, and a great shame and pity filled his heart. The blood of this girl was on his hands, and he could do nothing to help her. His selfishness had dragged her into this miserable enterprise, and now its inevitable end was at hand, and he was her murderer, the murderer of the woman who was all the world to him, and who had been entrusted to his care with her father's dying breath. Forgive me, he said at length, with something like a sob, and laying his hand upon hers. What have I to forgive, Leonard? she replied gently. Now that it is all finished, and I look back upon the past few months, it seems to me that it is you who should forgive, for I have often behaved badly to you. Nonsense, Juana. It was my wicked folly that led you into this, and now you are about to be cut off in the beginning of your youth and in the flower of your beauty. I am your murderer, Juana. And dropping his voice, he hesitated, then added, it may as well out now, for time is short, though I have often sworn that nothing should make me say it. I love you. She did not start or even stir at his words, but sat staring as before into the darkness. Only a pink flush grew upon the pallor of her neck and cheek as she answered, You love me, Leonard? You forget Jane Beach. It is perfectly true, Juana, that I was once attached to Jane Beach. And it is true that I still think of her with affection, but I have not seen her for many years, and I am certain that she has thrown me over and married another man. Most men pass through several affairs of the heart in their early days. I have had but one, and it is done with. When I first saw you in the slave camp, I loved you, Juana, and I have gone on loving you ever since, even after I became aware from your words and conduct that you did not entertain any such affection for myself. I know your mind has not changed upon the matter, for had it done so, you would scarcely have spoken to me as you did today after Ulfan left us. Indeed, I do not altogether understand why I have told you this, since it will not interest you very much and may possibly annoy you in your last hours. I suppose it was because I wished to make a clean breast of it, before I passed to where we lose all our loves and hopes. Or find them, said Juana, still looking before her. 
Then there was silence for a minute or more, till Leonard, believing he had got his answer, began to think he would do very well to leave her for a while. Just as he was about to rise, Juana made a gentle movement. Slowly, very slowly, she turned herself. Slowly she stretched out her arms towards him and laid her head upon his breast. For a moment Leonard was astounded. He could scarcely believe the evidence of his senses. Then, recovering himself, he kissed her tenderly. Presently, Juana slipped from his embrace and said, Listen to me, Leonard. Are men all blind, I wonder? Or are you an exception? I don't know, <laughs> and don't want to know. But certainly it does seem strange that what has been so painfully patent to myself for the last five or six months should have been invisible to you. Leonard, you were not the only one who fell in love yonder in the slave camp, but you quickly checked my folly by telling me the story of Jane Beach, and of course after that, whatever my thoughts may have been, I did my utmost to hide them from you, with more success, it seems, than I expected. Indeed, I am not sure that I am wise to let you see them now, for though you declare Jane is dead and buried, she may re-arise at any moment. I do not believe that men forget their first loves, Leonard, though they may persuade themselves to the contrary when they are a long way from them. Don't you think that we might drop Jane, dear? he asked with some impatience, for Juana's words brought back to his mind visions of another love scene that had taken place amid the English snows more than seven years before. I am sure that I am quite ready to drop her now and forever. "'But do not let us begin to spar when so little time is left us. "'Let us talk of other things. "'Tell me that you love me, love me, love me, "'for those are the words I would hear ringing in my ears "'before they come deaf to this world and its echoes. "'And those are the words with which I hope "'you will greet me some few hours hence and in a happier land. "'Leonard, tell me that you love me for today and for tomorrow, "'now and forever.' So he told her that and much more, speaking to her earnestly, hopefully, and most tenderly, as a man might speak to the woman whom he worshipped, and with whom is about to travel to that shore of which we know nothing, though day and night we hear the waves that bear us forward break yonder on its beach. They talked for long, and ever while they talked, Juana grew gentler and more human, as the barriers of pride melted in the fire of her passion, and the shadow of death gathered thicker upon her and the man she loved. At length her strength gave way utterly, and she wept upon Leonard's breast like some frightened child, and from weeping sank deep into deep slumber or swoon, he knew not which. Then he kissed her upon the forehead, and carrying her to her bed, laid her down to rest a while before she died, returning himself to the throne room. Here he found Francisco and Otter. Look, Bas, said the dwarf, producing from beneath his goatskin cloak an article which he had employed the last hour in constructing. It was a fearful and a wonderful instrument, made out of the two sacrificial knives that had been left by the priests on the occasion of the kidnapping of the last of the settlement men. 
The handles of these knives Otter had lashed together immovably with strips of hide, forming from them a weapon two feet or more in length, of which the curved points projected in opposite directions. "'What is that for, Otter?' said Leonard carelessly, for he was thinking of other things. "'This is for the crocodile to eat, Bas. I have seen his brothers caught like that before in the marshes of the Zambezi,' replied the dwarf with a grin. Doubtless he thinks to eat me, but I have made another food ready for him. Ha, 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 of one thing I am sure, that if he comes out, there will be a good fight, whoever conquers in the end. Then he proceeded to fix a hide rope to the handles of the knives, and having made it fast about his body with a running noose, he coiled its length, which may have measured some thirty feet, round and round his middle, artfully concealing its bulk together with the knives beneath his cloak and mucha. "'Now I am a man again, Bas,' said the dwarf grimly. "'I have done with drink and such follies to which I took in my hours of idleness, for the time has come to fight. Ah, and I shall win, Bas. The waters are my home, and I do not fear crocodiles, however big. No, not one bit. For as I told you, I have killed them before. You will see. You will see. I am afraid that I shall do nothing of the sort, Otter, answered Leonard sadly. But I wish you luck, my friend. If you get out of this mess, they will think you a god indeed. And should you only find the sense to avoid drink, you may rule here till you die of old age. There would be no pleasure in that, Bas, if you were dead answered the dwarf with a heavy sigh. Alas, my folly has helped to bring you into this trouble, but this I swear, that if I live, and my spirit tells me that I shall not die tonight, it will be to avenge you. Fear not, Bas. When I am a god again, one by one, I will kill them all, and when they are dead, then I will kill myself and come to look for you. It is very kind of you, Otter, I am sure, said Leonard with something like a laugh. And at that moment the curtains swung aside, and Soa stood before them accompanied by four armed priests. What do you want, woman? exclaimed Leonard, springing toward her as though by instinct. Go back, deliverer, she said, holding up her hand, and addressing him in the Sisutu tongue, which, of course, those with her did not understand. I am guarded, and my death would be quickly followed by your own. Moreover, it would avail you little to kill me, since I come to bring you hope for the life of her you love, and for your own. Listen, the sun will not shine tomorrow at the dawn. Already the mist gathers thick, and it will hold. Therefore the shepherdess and the dwarf will be hurled from the head of the statue, while you and the baldpate, having witnessed to their end, will be kept alive till the autumn sacrifice, then will be offered up with the other victims. Why do you come to tell us all this, woman? said Leonard, seeing that we knew it already. That is, except the news of the postponement of our own fate, which I for one do not desire. What hope is there in this story? If you have nothing better to say, get you gone, traitress and let us see your hateful face no more. I have something more to say, deliverer, 
I still love the shepherdess as you love her, and, she added with emphasis, as Baldpate yonder also loves her. Now this is my plan. Two must die at dawn, but of these two the shepherdess need not be one. The morning will be misty. The statue of the god is high, and but few of the priests will see the victim shrouded in her black robe. What if a substitute can be found, so like to her in shape and height and feature, that in the twilight and beneath the shadow of the hood none shall know them apart? Leonard started. Who can be found? Slowly, Soa raised her thin hand and pointed to Francisco. There stands the man, she said. Were he wrapped in the cloak of Akka, who would know him from the shepherdess? The pool and the snake do not give back that which they have swallowed. If Leonard had started before, now he fairly recoiled as the full meaning of this terrible proposition possessed his mind. He looked at Francisco, who stood by wondering, for the priest did not understand the Sisutu dialect. "'Tell him,' she said. "'Wait a while,' he answered hoarsely. "'Supposing that this were carried out, what would happen to the shepherdess?' "'She would be concealed in the dungeons of the temple in his dress and under his name.' And again she pointed to Francisco. "'Until such time as a chance could be found for her to escape.' or to return to rule this people unquestioned and with honor. My father alone knows of this plan, and because of his love for me he suffers me to try it, desperate as it seems. Also, for I will tell you all the truth, he himself is in danger, and he believes that by means of the shepherdess, who when she reappears having survived the sacrifice, will be held by the people to be immortal, he may save his life when the day of his own trial comes. And do you think, said Leonard, that I will trust her alone to you, wicked and forsworn as you are, and to the tender mercies of your father? No, it is better that she should die and have done with her fears and torments. I did not ask you to do so, deliverer, said Soa quietly. You will be taken with her, and if she lives, you will live also. Is that not enough? These men here come to bear you and Baldpate to the dungeons. They will bear you and the shepherdess, knowing no difference. That is all. Now tell him. Perchance he may not be willing to accept. Francisco, come here, said Leonard in a low voice, speaking in Portuguese. Then he told him all while Soa watched them with her glittering eyes. As the tale went on, the priest turned ashen pale and trembled violently, but before it was finished he ceased to tremble, and Leonard, looking at his face, saw that it was a light as with a glory. "'I accept,' he said in a clear voice, "'for thus it will be given to me to save the life of the Signora, and to atone for my offense.' Come, let me make ready. Francisco, muttered Leonard, for his emotion would not suffer him to speak aloud. You are a saint and a hero. I wish that I could go through with this in your stead, for most gladly would I do so. But it is not possible. 
It seems then that there are two saints and two heroes, replied the priest gently. But why talk thus? It is the bounden duty of either or both of us to die for her. Yet it is far better that I should die, leaving you alive to love and comfort her. Leonard thought a moment. I suppose it must be so, he said. But heaven knows it is a terrible alternative. How can I trust that woman Soa? And yet, if I do not trust her, Juana will be killed at once. You must take the chance of it, answered Francisco. After all, she is fond of her mistress, and it was because she grew jealous that she fled to Nam and betrayed us. There's another thing, said Leonard. How are we to get Juana away? If once she suspects the plot, there will be an end of it. Soa, come thither. She came, and he put this question to her, telling her at the same time that Francisco consented to the scheme and that Juana slept behind the curtain and might awake at any moment. I have that with me which shall overcome the difficulty, deliverer, answered Soa, for I foresaw it. See here, she drew a small gourd from her dress. This is that same water of which Saga gave your black dog to drink when I escaped you. Now mix it with some spirit, go to the shepherdess, awake her, and bid her drink this to comfort her. She will obey, and immediately deep sleep will take her again that shall hold her fast for six hours. It is not a poison? asked Leonard suspiciously. No, it is not a poison. What need would there be to poison one who must die at dawn? Then Leonard did as she told him. Taking a tin pannikin, one of their few possessions, he emptied the sleeping draught into it and added enough native brandy to color the water. Next he went to Juana's room and found her lying fast asleep upon the great bed. Going to her, he touched her gently on the shoulder, saying, Wake, my love. She raised herself and opened her eyes. Is that you, Leonard? she said. I was dreaming that I was a girl again, and at school at Durban, and that it was time to get up for early service at the church. Oh, I remember now. Is it dawn yet? No, dear, but it soon will be, he answered. Here, drink this, it will give you courage. How horrid that spirit tastes, she said, and sank back slowly on the cushion, and in another minute fell sound asleep again. The draft was strong, and it worked quickly. Leonard went to the curtain and beckoned to Soa and the others. They all entered except the priests, who remained clustered together near the doorway of the great chamber, talking in low tones, and apparently taking no notice of what passed. "'Take off that robe, bald pate,' said Soa. "'I must give you another.' He obeyed, and while Soa was engaged in clothing Juana's senseless form in the gown of the priest, Francisco drew his diary from the pocket of his vest— where he kept it. Rapidly he wrote a few lines on a blank page, then shutting the book, he handed it to Leonard together with his rosary, saying, Let the Signora read what I have written here, after I am dead, not before, and give her these beads in memory of me. Many is the time that I have prayed for her upon them. Perhaps she will wear them after I am gone, and although she is a Protestant, sometimes offer up a prayer for me. Leonard took the book and the rosary and placed them in an inner pocket. 
Then he turned to Otter and rapidly explained to him the meaning of all that was being done. Abbas, said the dwarf, put no faith in that she-devil, and yet perhaps she will try to save the shepherdess, for she loves her as a lioness loves her young. But I am afraid for you, boss, for you she hates. Never mind about me, Otter, answered Leonard. Listen, they are going to hide us in the dungeons of the temple. If by any chance you escape, seek out Ulfon and try to rescue us. If not, farewell, and may we meet again in another place. Oh, boss, boss, said Otter with a deep sob. For myself I care nothing. Not whether I live or die, but it is sad to think that you will perish alone and I not with you. Oh, why did Bas Tom dream that awful dream? Had it not been for him, we might have been transport riding in Natal today. I would that I had been a better servant to you, Bas, but it is too late now. And as he spoke, Leonard felt a great tear fall upon his hand. Never mind the servant, Otter, he answered. You are the best friend, black or white, that ever I had, and heaven reward you for it. If you can help the Bas yonder at last, do so. At the least, see that he swallows the medicine in time, for he is weak and gentle and not fitted to die such a death. And he turned away. By this time, Soa had arranged Francisco in the black robe of Aka. The white dress worn in the temple ceremonies he did not put on, for it remained upon Juana, completely hidden from sight, however, by the priest's gown. "'Who would know them apart now?' asked Soa triumphantly, then added, handing Leonard the great ruby which she had taken from Juana's forehead. "'Here, deliverer, this belongs to you. Do not lose the stone, for you have gone through much to win it.' Leonard took the gem and at first was minded to dash it into the old woman's sneering face, but remembering the uselessness of such a performance, he thrust it into his pocket together with the rosary. "'Come, let us be going,' said Soa. "'You must carry the shepherdess deliverer. I will say that it is Baldpate who has fainted with fear. Farewell, Baldpate.' After all, you are a brave man, and I honor you for this deed. Keep the hood well about your face, and if you would preserve this shepherdess alive, be silent, answering no word whoever addresses you, and uttering no cry how great your fear. Francisco went to the bed where Juana lay, and holding out his hand above her as though in blessing, he muttered some words of prayer or farewell. Then turning, he clasped Leonard in his arms, kissed him, and blessed him also. "'Good-bye, Francisco,' said Leonard in a choking voice. "'Surely the kingdom of heaven is made up of such as you.' "'Do not weep, my friend,' answered the priest. "'For there in that kingdom I hope to greet you and her.' And so these friends parted. Chapter 31 the White Dawn Lifting Juana in his arms, Leonard hurried from the sleeping apartment to the throne room, where he halted, hesitating, for he did not know what was to happen next. 
Soa, who had preceded him, surrounded by the four priests, and with a torch in her hand, stood against that wall of the chamber where she had lain bound on the night of the drugging of Otter. Baldpate has fainted with fear. He is a coward, she said to the priests, pointing to the burden in Leonard's arms. Open the secret way and let us pass on. Then a priest came forward and pressed upon a stone in the wall which gave way, leaving a space sufficiently large for him to insert his hand and pull upon some hidden mechanism with all his force. Thereon a piece of the wall swung outward as though upon a pivot, revealing a flight of steps, beyond which ran a narrow passage. Soa descended first, bearing the light which she was careful to hold in such a way as to keep the figure of Leonard and the burden that he bore in comparative darkness. After her went two priests, followed by Leonard carrying Juana, the rear being brought up by the remaining priests who closed the secret door behind them. So that is how it is done, thought Leonard to himself, turning his head to watch the process, no detail of which escaped him. Otter, who had followed Leonard from Juana's chamber, saw them go, though from some little distance, for like a cat the dwarf could see in the dark. When the rock had closed again, he turned to Francisco, who sat upon the bed, lost in prayer or thought. "'I have seen how they make a hole in the wall,' he said, and passed through it. "'Doubtless our companions, the settlement men, went that way. Say, shall we try it?' "'What is the use, Otter?' answered the priest. "'The road leads only to the dungeons of the temple.' If we got so far, we should be caught there, and everything would be discovered, including this trick. And he pointed to the robes of Akka which he wore. That is true, said Otter. Come then, let us go and sit upon the thrones and wait until they fetch us. So they went to the great chairs and sat themselves down in them, listening to the tramp of the guards outside the doorway. Here Francisco resumed his prayers, while Otter sang songs of the deeds that he had done, and more especially a very long one which he had composed upon the taking of the slave camp, to keep his heart alive, as he explained to Francisco. A quarter of an hour passed, and the curtains were drawn aside, admitting a band of priests headed by Nam and bearing two litters. Now, silence, Otter! whispered Francisco, drawing his hood over his face. "'Here sit the gods,' said Nam, waving the torch that he carried toward the two quiet figures on the thrones. "'Descend, ye gods, that we may bear you to the temple, and see you in a lofty place, whence ye shall watch the glories of the rising sun.' Then, without more ado, Otter and Francisco came down from their seats and took their places in the litters. Presently they felt themselves being borne forward at a considerable speed. When they were outside the palace gates, Otter peeped through the curtain in the hope of perceiving some change in the weather. In vain. The mist was denser than usual, although it grew gray with the light of the coming dawn. Now they were at those gates of the temple that were nearest to the colossal idol, and there, at the mouth of one of the numerous underground passages, guards assisted them to descend. "'Farewell, queen,' whispered the voice of Olfan into Francisco's ear. "'I would have given my life to save you, but I have failed. "'As it is, I live to avenge you upon Nam and all his servants.' "'Francisco made no answer, but pressed on down the passage, holding his head low. 
Soon they were at the foot of the idol, and led by priests began to ascend the stairway in the interior of the statue. Up they toiled slowly in the utter darkness. Indeed, to Francisco, this, the last journey of his life, seemed the longest. At length they emerged upon the head of the Colossus, where neither of them had been before. It formed a flat platform about eight feet square, quite unprotected at the edges, beneath which curved the sheer outlines of the sculptured head. The ivory throne whereon Juana had sat when she first visited the temple was gone, and instead of it, placed at the very verge of the forehead, were two wooden stools upon which the victims must seat themselves. From this horrible elevation could be seen that narrow space of rock between the feet of the colossus and the wall of the pool where was the stone altar, although owing to the slope of the bowed head, he who stood upon it almost overhung the waters of the well. Otter and Francisco seated themselves on the stools, and behind them Nam and three other priests took their stand, Nam placing himself in such a position that his companions could not see anything of Francisco's slight form, which they believed to be that of the shepherdess. "'Hold me, Otter!' whispered Francisco. "'My senses will leave me, and I shall fall.' "'Shut your eyes and lean back. Then you will see nothing,' answered Otter. "'Moreover, make ready your medicine, for the time is at hand.' "'It is ready,' he answered. "'May I be forgiven the sin, for I cannot bear to be hurled living to the snake.' Otter made no answer, but set himself to watch the scene beneath him. The temple was filled with mist that from the great height looked like smoke, and through this veil he could just distinguish the black and moving mass of the vast assembly, who had sat the long night through waiting to witness the consummation of the tragedy, while the sound of their voices as they spoke together in hushed tones reached him like that of the murmuring of distant waters. Behind him stood the four priests, or executioners, in a solemn, silent line their eyes fixed upon the gray mist, while above them, around them, and beneath them was nothing but sheer and giddy space. It was a hideous position, heightened by every terror that man and nature can command, and even the intrepid dwarf, who feared neither death nor devil, and over whom religious doubts had no power, began to feel its chilling influence grip his heart. As for Francisco, such mind as he had left to him was taken up with fervent prayer, so it is possible that he did not suffer so much as might have been expected. Five minutes or more passed thus, then a voice spoke from the mist below, saying, Are those who are named Akka and Jal on high, O priest? They are on high, answered Nam. Is it the hour of dawn, O priest? said the voice again, and this time Otter knew it for that of the spokesman of the elders. Not yet a while, answered Nam, and he glanced at the snow peak that towered thousands of feet into the air behind and above the temple. Indeed, every eye in that assembly was staring at this peak, although its gigantic outline could only be seen dimly through the mist, dimly as the shape of a corpse buried in a winding sheet of snow. Here, upon the loftiest precipices of the mountain, the full light of morning struck first, and struck always, for their pinnacles soared far above the level of the mist wreaths, and by the quality of that light this people judged the weather of the newborn day, if the snow was rosy red, 
then they knew that ere long the sun would shine upon them. If, on the other hand, it gleamed cold and white, or worse still, gray, it was a sign that the coming day would be misty in the city and on the plains. Therefore in this the hour of the trial of the gods whom they had set up, all that company watched the mountain peak as they had never watched it before, to see if it should show white or red. Very gradually the light increased, and it seemed to Otter that the mist was somewhat thinner than was usual at this hour, though as yet it hung densely between them and the mountain snows. Now he could trace the walls of the amphitheater, now he could see the black shimmer of the water beneath and distinguish the glitter of many hundreds of upturned eyeballs as they glared at him and beyond him. The silence grew more and more intense, for none spoke or moved. All were waiting to see the dawn break upon the slope of snow and wondering, would it be red or white? Must the gods die or live? So intense and fearful was the hush, unbroken by a breath of air or the calling of a bird that Otter could bear it no longer, but suddenly burst into song. He had a fine, deep voice, and it was a Zulu war song that he sang, a triumphant paean of the rush of conquering impis, interspersed with the wails of women and the groans of the dying. Louder and louder he sang, stamping his naked feet upon the rock, while the people wondered at the marvel. Surely this was a god, they thought, who chanted thus exultingly in a strange tongue while men waited to see him cast into the jaws of the snake. No mortal about to die so soon and thus terribly could find the heart to sing, and much less could he sing such a song as that they heard. He is a god, cried a voice far away, and the cry was echoed on every side till at length, suddenly, Men grew silent, and Otter also ceased from his singing, for he had turned his head and seen. Lo, the veil of mist that hid the mountain's upper heights grew thin. It was the moment of dawn, but would it be a red dawn or white? As he looked, the vapors disappeared from the peak, though they still lay thick upon the slopes below, and in their place were seen its shining and smooth outlines clothed in a cloak of everlasting snows. The ordeal was ended. No touch of color, no golden sunbeam or crimson shadow stained the ghastly surface of those snows. They were as pallid as the faces of the dead. A white dawn! A white dawn! roared the populace. Away with the false gods! Hurl them to the snake! It is finished, whispered Otter again into Francisco's ear. Now take your medicine and friend farewell. The priest heard, and clasping his thin hands together, turned his tormented face in which the soft eyes shone upwards toward the heavens. For some seconds he sat thus, then Otter, peering beneath his hood, saw his countenance change, and once more a glory seemed to shine upon it, as it had shone when some hours since Francisco promised to do the deed that he was now about to dare. Again there was silence below, for the spokesman of the Council of Elders had risen and was crying the formal question to the priests above. Is the dawn white or red, ye who stand on high? Nam turned and looked upon the snow. The dawn is fully dawned, and it is white, he answered. Be swift, 
whispered Otter to Francisco's ear. Then the priest raised his right hand to his lips as though to partake of the sacrament of death. A moment later and he let it fall with a sigh, whispering back to Otter, I cannot, it is a deadly sin. They must kill me, for I will not kill myself. Before the dwarf could answer, nature, more merciful than his conscience, did that for Francisco which he refused to do for himself. For of a sudden he swooned. His face turned ashen, and slowly he began to sink backwards, so that he would have fallen had not Nam, who saw he had fainted with fear, caught him by the shoulders and held him upright. "'The dawn is white. We see it with our eyes,' answered the spokesman of the elders. "'O ye who stand on high, cast down the false gods according to the judgment of the people of the mist.' Otter heard, and knew that the moment had come to leap, for now he need trouble himself with Francisco no more. Swiftly he turned his head, looking at Nam, for he would know if he might carry out a purpose that he had formed. It was to seize the high priest and bear him to the depths below. It was not possible. He was out of reach. Moreover, were he to snatch Nam away, Francisco would fall backwards, and the others might see this was not the shepherdess. Otter stood up upon his feet, and kicking the stool on which he had sat off the platform, he watched its flight. It flew into the water, never touching the rock, and then the dwarf knew that he had planned well. Now Nam and one priest seized the fainting form of Francisco, and the other two stepped toward Otter. The dwarf waited until their hands were outstretched to grasp him. Then suddenly he sprang at the man on his right and shouting, "'Come thou with me!' He gripped him about the middle in his iron grasp, and putting out all his strength, hurled himself and his burden into sheer space beneath. The priest shrieked aloud, and a gasp of wonder went up from the watching thousands as the dwarf and his victim rushed downward like a stone. They cleared the edge of the pool by an inch or two, no more, and struck the boiling water, sinking through them till Otter thought they would never rise again. But at last they did rise. Then Otter loosed the dead or senseless priest, and at that moment the body of Francisco, cast thither by Nam, struck the water beside him and straightway vanished forever. Otter loosed his grip, and diving beneath the surface swam hard for the north side of the pool, for there he had noticed the current was least strong, and there also the rock bank overhung a little. He reached it safely, and rising once more, grabbed a knob of rock with one hand, and lay still where in the shadow and the swirl of waters he could not be discovered by any watching him from above. He breathed deeply and moved his limbs. It was well. He was unhurt. The priest whom he had taken with him, being heaviest, had met the water first, so that though the leap was great, the shock had been little. Ha! said Otter to himself. Thus far my spirit has been with me, and here I could lie for hours and never be seen. But there is still the snake to contend with. And hastily he seized the weapon that he had constructed out of two knives, and unwound a portion of the cord that was fast about his middle. Then again he looked across the surface of the waters. Some ten fathoms from him, in the exact center of the whirlpool, the body of the priest was still visible, for the vortex bore it round and round. But of Francisco there was nothing to be seen. 
Only thirty feet above him, Otter could see the lines of heads bending over the rocky edges of the pool and gazing at the priest as he was tossed about like a straw in an eddy. Now, if he is still there and awake, thought Otter, surely the father of crocodiles will take debate. Therefore, I shall do best to be still a while and see what happens. As he reflected thus, a louder shout than any he had heard before reached his ears from the multitude in the temple above him, so tumultuous a shout, indeed, that for a few moments even the turmoil of the waters was lost in it. Now what chance is up there, I wonder, thought Otter again. Then his attention was diverted in a somewhat unpleasant fashion. This was the cause of that shout. A miracle, or what the people of the mist took to be a miracle, had come about, that suddenly, for the first time within the memory of man, the white dawn had changed to red. Blood red was the snow upon the mountain, and lo, its peaks were turned to fire. For a while, all those who witnessed this phenomenon stood aghast. Then there arose that babble of voices which had reached the ears of Otter as he lurked under the bank of rock. "'The gods have been sacrificed unjustly!' yelled the people. "'They are true gods, see? The dawn is red!' The situation was curious and most unexpected, but Nam, who had been a high priest for more than fifty years, proved himself equal to it. "'This is a marvel indeed!' he cried when silence had at length been restored, "'for no such thing is told of in our history.' that as a white dawn upon the mountain should turn to red. Yet, O people of the mist, those whom we thought gods have not been offered up wrongfully. Nay, this is the meaning of the sign. Now are the true gods, Akka and Jal, appeased, because those who dare to usurp their power have gone down to doom. Therefore, the curse is lifted from the land, and the sunlight has come back to bless us. As he finished speaking, again the tumult broke out, some crying this thing and some that, but no action was taken, for Nam's excuse was ready and plausible, and the minds of men were confused. So the assembly broke up in disorder. Only the priests, and as many more as could find place, Ulfan among them, crowded round the edges of the pool to see what happened in its depths. Meanwhile, Otter had seen that which caused him to think no more of the shouting above him than of the humming of last year's gnats. Suffering his eyes to travel round the circumference of the rocky wall, he saw the mouth of a circular hole situated immediately under the base of the idol, which may have measured some eight feet in diameter. The lower edge of this hole stood about six inches above the level of the pool, and the water ran out of it in a thin stream. Passing down this stream, half swimming and half waddling, appeared that huge and ungainly reptile which was the real object of the worship of the people of the mist. Great as were its length and bulk, the dwarf saw it but for a few moments so swift were its movements. Then the creature vanished into the deep waters, to reappear presently by the side of the dead priest who was now beginning to sink. Its horrible head rose upon the waters, as on that night when the woman had been thrown to it. It opened its huge jaws, and seizing the body of the man across the middle, it disappeared beneath the foam. 
Otter watched the mouth of the hole, and not in vain, for before he could have counted ten, the monster was crawling through it, bearing its prey into the cave. Now once more the dwarf felt afraid, for the snake, or rather the crocodile, at close quarters was far more fearful than anything his imagination had portrayed. Keeping his place beneath the ledge, which, except for the coldness of the water, he found himself able to do with little fatigue or difficulty, Otter searched the walls of the pool, seeking for some possible avenue of escape, since his ardor for personal conflict with this reptile had evaporated. But search as he would, he could find nothing, for the walls were full thirty feet high and sloped inwards like the sides of an inverted funnel. Wherever the exits from the pool might be, they were invisible. Also, notwithstanding his strength and skill, Otter did not dare to swim into the furious eddy to look for them. One thing he noticed. Immediately above the entrance to the crocodile's den, and some twenty feet from the level of the water, two holes were pierced in the rock, six feet or so apart, each measuring about twelve inches square. But these holes were not to be reached, and even if reached they were too small to pass, so Otter thought no more of them. Now the cold was beginning to nip him, and he felt that if he stayed where he was much longer he would become paralyzed by it, for it was fed from the ice and snow above. Therefore it would seem that there was but one thing to do, to face the water-dweller in his lair. To this, then, Otter made up his mind, albeit with loathing and a doubtful heart. Doubtful heart? No freaking kidding, right? Oh, me? My homemade machete-style uh, weapon and a crocodile bono-mono, biggest crocodile ever seen, 300 years old, or something like that. Oh, Otter, if you can pull this off, I will truly think you might be Jal, the god. <laughs> I also loved Otter's plan to grab Nam. This guy, he has always got his eye on the ball. No messing around for him. And does anyone else wonder what happened to Francisco? He just goes down and no one sees him again. And I'm thinking, does this go to a river somewhere? Does it come out at a waterfall later on? I mean, are we going to ever find out what happened to his body? He's just gone we don't know if he's dead. I guess we just assume he's dead. Noble. And also a good Catholic. Not going to kill himself. Lucky for him that he faints like a girl, right? <laughs> and also, of course, then we have Juana and Leonard, who finally screwed up to the very point of death. I love you. Oh, I love you too. Thank goodness for Leonard, because I'm not sure Juana would have ever done anything. She had that whole Jane Beach situation going on. She just could not let it go. Well, next time, we're going to find out how the battle with the crocodile goes. And more, of course. We're about three-fourths of the way through the book, and I'm starting to wonder what we should read next. Everything I can think of seems to be very much like this. Kind of pulpy, kind of adventurish, kind of fantastical, and maybe we need a change. So I'm trying to think of something that's different. If you have any ideas, be sure to let me know. 
I may read a couple of short stories while we're thinking it over. I have a few of those stored up, too. Now, in other podcast news, I don't really have much other podcast news, but I will say that Audible has re-released To Kill a Mockingbird, read by Sissy Spacek. You'll have to pardon my pronunciation. (laughs) That oral surgery is really messing with it. And it's really wonderful, just enough of an accent to really pull you to the South And you listen to all those details kind of wash over you, and you just feel like you're in that small town with those kids. It's one of my favorite books, and I haven't read it for a really long time. So this was a great opportunity to reread it. And as I say, I don't really have anything else. I've had jury duty. I've had oral surgery. I've got that wedding retreat coming up. So I've just been hopping from one thing to another. Let me know what's going on with you or what you'd like to hear me read or comments about the story. My email is julie, J-U-L-I-E, at glyphnet.com. The blog for the podcast, where you can leave comments, is hcforgottenclassics.blogspot.com. Of course, I always welcome and enjoy any comments left on iTunes and it helps people notice it. I hope whatever your summer's like, it's a good one for you. It may not be in the doldrums, but even if it's kind of slow and you're feeling lazy, that's okay. This is that time of year. And as always, I appreciate you coming by to listen. I wouldn't be reading this book out loud, and we can tell I'm having a great time doing it. Thanks a lot, everybody. Have a great week, and I'll talk to you again soon. Bye-bye.